Today we're, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture, uh, Acts chapter 9, that is always been, I, I have found very compelling. Um, it's the conversion of Paul, or the conversion of Saul, I should say. We'll, we'll get into his name in a second. And this is, I think, one of the most dramatic and unexpected conversions in all of Scripture. You have the conversion of Saul here, who would, like I said, be later become known as the Apostle Paul. This man would write 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament, nearly half the books. No other biblical author is even close. The Apostle John is, is second with five books. Pastor John MacArthur, who Ace knows well, said this about Paul, more than any other individual, Paul was responsible for the spread of Christianity throughout the Roman Empire. His three missionary journeys and trip to Rome turned Christianity from the faith that included only a small group of Palestinian Jewish believers into an empire-wide phenomenon. And you could even expand that out to today. Here we are 21 centuries later still talking about this man, the Apostle Paul, and what he wrote in the Word of God. He was born around 5 AD in, in a town called Tarsus. This was an important city in modern-day Turkey. His parents were Jewish, but they were also Roman citizens, which was a really coveted uh, benefit at that particular time, and it would really help uh, Saul, who became Paul, as he traveled on his missionary journeys, it gave him access to areas that he wouldn't have had if he hadn't been a Roman citizen. So Saul was his Jewish name, and he was called that even well after his conversion. But then when he began proclaiming Christ and went on these missionary journeys to talk about Jesus Christ to the Gentiles in the Roman world, he went by his Roman name, Paul. He was likely raised in an affluent or semi-affluent family, well-educated. His family moved to Jerusalem when he was young, where he would eventually study under the world-renowned, or at least at the time, one of the most famous rabbis of all time, Gamaliel. He was considered the greatest teacher of Judaism. And Saul became a Pharisee, which was a very strict sect of Judaism. They, they fastidiously kept the Old Testament laws. They, along with another religious sect called the Sadducees, and by the way, those two groups were opposed to each other in doctrines in many ways, they somehow combined together to form the, the ruling religious elite in Israel. Saul was highly intelligent and highly educated, which don't always go together sometimes. <laughs> he was highly religious. He disdained Christians because he believed that Christ was a false messiah. He believed that Christ was a liar, a, a poser, a blasphemer, and thus true Christ followers needed to be, were leading people astray. Now, interesting enough, this is something that we often don't think about, that Christ and Paul live somewhat concurrently. But the scripture never indicates that they cross paths in life. Christ having been born maybe eight or ten years before uh, Saul was born. They never crossed paths in life. That is until Paul was on that road to Damascus. And he was on that road to Damascus to, to go to arrest and imprison Christians. And this took place around the year A.D. 33, A.D. 34, just a few years after Christ had ascended into heaven. Christ appeared to Saul on that road, and Saul's life, the rest of his earthly life, and his eternity were changed forever. Saul never married. He never had children. He was completely rejected and persecuted by his former religious peers after he came to saving faith. He traveled all over the Roman Empire believe, uh, proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God. He started churches. He discipled pastors. He inspired letters of Scripture, as we talked about, and generally left a path of saved souls wherever he went. The, the chief persecutor of Christ became the chief proclaimer of Christ. But he also became the chief persecuted as well. He was regularly beaten, falsely accused, 
He was imprisoned and finally martyred in Rome around A.D. 65. As the tradition says, he was beheaded. His dedication to Christ still impacts believers and non-believers all over the world now 21 centuries later. So what was the background leading up to Paul's or Saul's conversion in Acts chapter 9? So we're going to take a sprint through the first eight chapters of the book of Acts just to have some context. So if you have your Bible, let's, let's go to Acts chapter 1. You're going to be flipping pages here really quick, so be ready to turn the page as we go through this. We'll just read a couple of select passages that are going to give you a good flavor for, for what led to this just amazing and most unexpected conversion of, of Saul. In Acts chapter 1, we, we find that Jesus is, is finished with his earthly ministry and he, he ascends into heaven. The, the disciples are left looking in the air, watching Christ. What a moment that must have been to see Christ ascend back to his Father in heaven. And the church age begins, the church being the, the body of Christ's followers on earth. Turning over to Acts 2, 50 days after Christ's crucifixion, God sends his Holy Spirit and empowers the disciples of Jesus to do miraculous things, such as boldly preaching, even in languages they don't even know. The Apostle Paul, Paul or Peter preaches a sermon to the Jews, and, and thousands of people become followers of Christ. I mean, what, what amazing evangelism this is. Look in Acts there, at Acts 2, verses 38 through 42. Peter said to them, Acts 2, 38, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were about 3,000 souls added. Jewish religious leaders were having a fit about this. 3,000 people being added to following these disciples. They had just arranged for Christ's crucifixion. They had thought they were done with him. Now thousands of people are being influenced and in coming to faith in him. This is their worst nightmare. This is diminishing their own influence, and they just cannot have this. Turn over to Acts 3 in our sprint through the first eight chapters. In this chapter, on the, on the way to the, the temple to pray, two of Christ's disciples, Peter and John, heal a lame man, a lame beggar. Look at Acts 3, verse 6. Peter says, I do not possess silver and gold, as this beggar asks them for money, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. People are just understandably amazed at what's taking place. Peter, Peter goes on from this healing to preach a second sermon to the Jews, and this time these Jewish religious leaders are going to step in to stop it. Turn over to Acts chapter 4. They arrest Peter and John. They bring them before this Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin council where you have the high priest and the Pharisees and the Sadducees all together. Look at Acts 4, verse 7. When they had placed them, Peter and John, in the center, center of the room, they begin to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick, sick man for healing this, this lame man as to how this man has been made well, let it be made known to all of you and to all of the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And then there's this, this verse 12, which is one of my favorite passages. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which 
we must be saved. That was true back then and is just as true today. There's no other name given among men by which we must be saved. The apostles have, have seen, Peter and John and the apostles have seen this, this risen Christ, and now they are empowered by the Holy Spirit. You really think they're going to stop talking about this? Not a chance. Turn over to Acts 5, where there are more conversions, more people coming to saving faith, more miracles, more persecution. Verse 12, Acts 5, at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. And these signs and wonders, God gave them the power to do these to validate what they were saying, that, boy, this is really real. Look what these people can do. Only God can do things like this. Verse 14, and all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number of believers. Also, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. Can you imagine something like this taking place today in Jerusalem? Verse 17, but the high priest rose up. Again, they're not going to take this. Can't have this. Along with it, all his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were all filled with jealousy. Diminishing influence, jealousy. They laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. Verse 19, another miracle, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison. And taking them out, he said, go, stand, and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. Tell them about Jesus. They do. And they get arrested again. And finally, the religious leaders tell them in verse 31 of chapter 5, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Verse 29. Sorry, I started at verse 28. Uh, Verse 29. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Now at this constant pushback now from Peter and John and the others, they, the, the religious leaders can't take this. They intend to kill them at this moment. But interestingly enough, Saul's rabbi, the one who taught Saul when he was a boy, steps in. Gamaliel steps in and says this in verse 38, Acts 5. Encourages, tells the rest of the council, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them or else you may even be found fighting against God. Man spoke truth there. We don't know if he ever came to saving faith, but he certainly spoke truth in that moment. Turn over to Acts 6. A a disciple named Stephen enters the narrative in Acts 6. He performs, again, great signs and wonders, and like before, he's arrested. Turn now to Acts 7 as we make this sprint through the first eight chapters. We're almost done with this sprint. Stephen addresses the Sanhedrin council after he's arrested. And in his defense, he gives this brilliant history of Old Testament Israel and how they had repeatedly disobeyed the Lord. And then he concludes in verse 51 of chapter 7 by saying this, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, Jesus, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels, and yet did not keep it. This is courageous, bold preaching. I mean, he's talking to people that want to put him to death. As Pastor Steve Lawson likes to say, 
The problem with preachers today is no one wants to kill them anymore. <laughs> this was not the case with Stephen. The, the boiling point now in this crescendo in Acts has been reached. The, the jealousy, the, the resentment, the, the anger has now turned to hatred. And hatred, as we know from Scripture, always eventually, if left unchecked, turns to murder. Look at verse 54 of chapter 7. Now when they heard this, the, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him, Stephen. But being full of the Holy Spirit, Stephen gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Verse 57, But they cried out with a loud voice and covering their ears, they rushed at him, with one impulse. Verse 58, when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning Stephen. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Verse 59, they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. He died. A young man here named Saul makes his first appearance in all of Scripture. He is seen here holding the clothes of those stoning Stephen. In other words, He's in charge, and his thugs are doing his dirty work. Turn over to Acts 8, which starts out this way in the very first verse. Saul was in hearty agreement, hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all they, being believers, were all scattering throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Verse 3, but Saul, again, began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Saul enters Scripture, and all we see him doing is holding the clothes of those who are stoning Stephen, of, of hearty agreement with putting him to death, of of entering house after house and ravaging the church. This Saul, he's a very wicked man. He's a persecutor of, of Christians, an accomplice to murder. Just let that sink in for a second. The most noteworthy New Testament Christian made his name persecuting Christians. But the persecutions he was, was leading, he didn't understand this, he was ignorant of this probably, but... It is always the case when you, when you persecute the followers of Christ, it's like blowing on a dandelion. The seeds just go everywhere and begin to grow elsewhere, and that's exactly what happened. Which brings us to our, our chapter for today, Acts chapter 9, and the amazing story of Saul's conversion. The chapter opens with Saul taking his persecution of Christians on the road, traveling to Damascus, which is about 160 miles northeast of Jerusalem, still a prominent city in Syria today. Christ's followers were there because they were fleeing this persecution that Saul was leading in Jerusalem. So we're going to read the first 22 verses of Acts to, to get an overview of this account of, of Saul's conversion, this amazing, unexpected conversion from a persecutor of Christ to a proclaimer of Christ. Acts chapter 9, verse 1, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. And he asked for letters from him to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound, arrest them, and bring them to Jerusalem. Verse 3, As he was, as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus. 
And suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. Verse 7, The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, blind. And he neither ate nor drank. Verse 10, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Verse 13, But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him, Saul, how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Verse 17, So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, by which you were coming to Damascus, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell, fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight. And he got up and was baptized. And Saul took food and was strengthened. Now for several days, Saul was with the disciples who were at Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name and who had come here to Damascus for the purpose of bringing them bound back before the chief priests? Verse 22, But Saul kept increasing in strength, and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. This, this uh, account, this true story, has to be one of the greatest 180-degree U-turns in the history of the world. So how does this happen? How does someone go from being a persecutor of Christians to becoming the foremost proclaimer of Christianity? And how is Saul's conversion even relevant for us here in the year 2021? I think there's three takeaways that I'd just like to point out today. The first takeaway is this, that Saul was religious but not regenerate. What does it mean to be religious but not regenerate? It means you believe in God. It means you believe that your life is pleasing to God. But in reality, you're not right with God. Being religious but not regenerate is the absolute most dangerous state of being. It is really the ultimate in self-deception. The dictionary defines the word regenerate as reformed or reborn, as in a spiritual or moral sense. Reformed or reborn. But biblically, this word regenerate means more than reformed, you know, changed or improved. Reborn is the more accurate term. It's not reborn physically, because we can't be reborn physically, but it's being born spiritually. It's what Jesus meant in, in, in that passage when he was talking to another Pharisee, Nicodemus, and 
in John chapter 3, when he told him in John chapter 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, made regenerate, regenerated, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So how was one born again? How was one made regenerate, regenerated? Well, this same man who was just regenerated, the Saul, when he was called the Apostle Paul, wrote in his letter to the Ephesians church, Ephesians 2, verse 1, he said, And you were dead, he's talking about believers before they come to saving faith, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. He says that in verse 1. But in verse 4 he says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were spiritually dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. There it is. You're, you're dead in transgressions means you're, you're born spiritually dead and you continue in that. You're spiritually dead. Then God, or but God, intervenes in a life and makes that person alive together with Christ. You're spiritually born. You go from spiritually dead to spiritually born. And as a result of God intervening in one's life. So saying Saul was religious but not regenerate means he sincerely believed in God. He was convinced that his life pleased God. But in fact, he was opposing God because he was not born again. He was spiritually dead. And it was evidence that he was opposing God by the fact that he was out persecuting followers of God. I mean, what a terrible place to be in life. I mean, what could be worse than believing you're on the narrow way to heaven when in fact you are on the broad road to hell? You know, Jesus himself described this state of religious but not regenerate in Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. It's just some people call this the scariest passage in Scripture. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me or calls me Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Verse 22, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? And then I, Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's exactly the state Saul was in before he came to saving faith. Called God his God, but his works proved that he was not a follower of God. Saul and the Pharisees believed they could earn God's favor through following his laws very fastidiously. And they'd even add some of their own just in case. They diligently studied the scriptures. They did all kinds of religious deeds. They washed their hands in a certain way. They prayed a certain way and prayed often. And they helped the poor. Did all these kinds of religious deeds. They were respected amongst the people. They were perceived as the good people. They were sincere. But they were sincerely wrong. They were self-assured. But they were self-deceived. I mean, Saul thought he was doing God's work by arresting Christians. He was convinced of his righteousness. And this is the way the religious but the not regenerate are. It's, it's, a, it's a state of being that most people in this world are in, sadly, tragically. Whether professing Christians or those of other belief systems, other religions. And it's damning because you're trusting in your own works to earn salvation, rather than trusting in Christ's work who earned our salvation. There's a major difference there between trusting in your own works to earn salvation, rather than trusting Christ's work on the cross who earned your salvation for you. Because when you put your faith in even an ounce of your own works to be right with God, what you're really saying is that, well, you know, Christ's work on the cross wasn't quite enough. I need to add something to it. I mean, how insulting is that to God who said Christ paid for all our sins? It's really calling God a liar to be religious but not regenerate and trusting in your own works. In that same passage in Ephesians chapter 2, later on in the passage, 
the Apostle Paul when he became that. He says, for by grace, grace, unearned favor, unmerited favor by God, you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Salvation's a gift. It's not a, as a result of your works, so that no one may boast. Now, interestingly, there was no group of people that Christ actually openly rebuked more than the religious but not regenerate. You ever notice how he, he treated the Pharisees and the Sadducees? I mean, he was just so kind to, to, un, to unbelievers, to those who were caught in sin. He was just so willing to help them and eat with them and do whatever with them. But when it came to the religious but not regenerate, Listen to what he says. Just a little compilation here. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those who enter who are trying to. Matthew 13 or Matthew 23. He called them blind guides and blind fools in Matthew 23, 16, and 17. Like, quote, whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead, and everything uncleaned. It was, the, it was the, the religious but not regenerate who were the ones who arranged for, for Jesus' death. So what changed Saul? What changes anyone from religious alone to religious and regenerate? The answer is simple. It's Jesus Christ. The same Son of God who who opened the blind spiritual eyes of Saul in this passage we read, is able to save anyone, anyone, who bows before him in repentant faith, not trusting in their own works, but only in Christ's work on the cross on their behalf. Saul's object of faith changed from, from an object of faith in his own works to an object of faith in Christ, in his work on Saul's behalf. And in the passage that Ace read earlier, just going to read a couple sentences from that. In Philippians chapter 3, you can see this object of faith changed in, in Saul's life. Philippians 3, verse 7, I count all things, Paul, Paul writes, to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. He lost everything to come to saving faith. He counted his, his previous life and everything he had and all his relig re religiosity but rubbish, garbage, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, and here it is, not having a righteousness of my own based on my own works derived from obeying the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. A, a righteousness, a different righteousness now, a Christ righteousness now, which comes from God on the basis of faith alone, not, not on my own works. No one can extract themselves, by the way, from being religious but not regenerate, just working hard or being a better person. That doesn't work. It takes an act of God, a work of the Holy Spirit in someone's heart that we must then respond to. So if you are here today in this room, it's not an accident. As God ordained and appointed Saul to meet him and convert him and become a follower of Christ on that road to Damascus, you are here for a purpose, for a reason to hear this message, not my message, but the message of Jesus Christ. To obey Jesus' command to repent of your sin and believe in the gospel. To transfer your trust from your own works to putting your faith, your trust, your belief in who Jesus Christ is, the, the Son of God and the Savior of mankind and his atoning work on the cross on your behalf, covering all your sins so you could be forgiven and imputed, be given the very righteousness of Christ so God would see all your past, present, and future sins as covered by Christ's blood so that you could be entered, welcomed into heaven, having the very righteousness of Christ. If you have not done that, I encourage you to do that today. Talk with Ace or one of the elders of this church or me after the service, and we'll tell you more about this, this simple yet profound means of, of being reconciled to God. And God will save you, just as he saved the apostle Paul, Saul. Takeaway number two. Paul was religious but not regenerate, but takeaway two is Paul was unregenerate 
but he was not unredeemable. And this is the great news. Look at verse 3 of chapter 9 of Acts. As he was traveling, we just read this, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. Now just get the picture here. Saul is marching down this road to Damascus, all full of confidence, feeling empowered on his religious rightness. He, uh, the next thing you know, he's flat on the ground before appearing before the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't miss this. Saul is not in a state of what the evangelical church today likes to be called a, a seeker. He's not seeking Christ. He is on his way to punish Christians. He's not looking to be saved. He's convinced he knows the truth and that he's on the right side of history. Romans 3. Oh, interestingly, also written by the Apostle Paul. There is none righteous, no, not one. Verse 11, there is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. And Saul was certainly not in that category. Saul's conversion destroys the false uh, notion that we are the initiators of our salvation. The Bible says that Christians are the the beneficiaries, the, the receivers, the gift receivers of God's gift of salvation, but not the the determiners of our salvation. Listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote again in Romans 8, 29. In fact, you might want to turn to this one because this this one's especially, especially powerful. Romans 8, verse 29, where Paul writes about this, what's it called, the golden chain of salvation. How our salvation is determined by God from before time began and is completed by God by his glorification of believers in the future. Listen to this chain, Romans 8, 29. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he, Christ, would be the firstborn among many believers or brethren. In these believers whom he predestined, he also called. In these he called, he also justified. In these whom he justified, he also glorified. Foreknew, predestined, called, justifies, glorifies. Foreknew, that means he, he, in advance, God chose those over whom he would bestow his love to save. God predestined means he determined in advance those he would save. He called, the third one, he called them to be saved. He brought it to pass. Then he justified them. He declares them righteous. Even though they're not, he declares them righteous based on what Christ did for them on the cross. And then eventually, he glorifies them in heaven. So where exactly is Saul's will in that chain, or our will in that golden chain of salvation? This is God's sovereignty in salvation. It's God, 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 God. And yet the Bible still says we must repent and believe or receive by faith or, or Jesus said you must be born again. There's something for us to do. There is, there's responsibility by man. And these are like parallel truths, like a train track with two rails going the same direction, ending in the same destination. And no human mind can understand this inscrutable wisdom of God, how God sovereignly chooses those who will be saved, and yet we, we must respond to the the call of the gospel to repent and believe. The point here is that unregenerate Saul, the persecutor of Christians, was not unredeemable because God is able and he does save even the most wicked of sinners. God had chosen Saul to be saved Uh, before time began. And this was the moment on the road to Damascus. He had ordained it to come to pass. Look at verse 15 back in in Acts chapter 9. 
Ananias, the one that came to him in the city, says in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, but the Lord said to him, Ananias, go, for he is a what? A chosen instrument of mine. He's elect to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. God intervened in Saul's life and saved him, and he can do the same for the vilest of sinners. So if you are here today and you think that you, or maybe you have someone else in your mind, maybe a family member who's been resistant forever, or maybe a friend who you think, oh, I just can't even imagine that person ever coming to saving faith. They've sinned so much. They're probably beyond God's forgiveness. Please remember this account of the conversion of Saul. His life was characterized by opposition to God and God still miraculously saved him look at verse 17 Acts 9 in our text so Ananias departed and entered the house and after laying his hands on Saul he said brother Saul not now they're brothers in the Lord the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit and immediately there fell from Saul's eyes something like scales and he regained his sight and he got up and was baptized and he took food and was strengthened and any believer here today knows what this is like to have the scales come off your eyes like why didn't i understand this message before why didn't i understand that i I was a sinner and uh, offending god and, and going the wrong direction why did i try to think my religiosity my religious deeds would be able to save me it's so obvious that i can't save myself i can never do enough good to offset the sin i've already done I need to be perfect to go to heaven. How can I be perfect except apart from God imputing his son's righteousness to me? Saul didn't even pray a prayer here. There's no evidence of that, at least. He didn't walk down an aisle or he didn't raise his hand in an an evangelistic event. He didn't even go to church. He wasn't part of a Bible study. The text just says that when Jesus appeared to him, Saul believed that Jesus is God who he says he is, the Son of God and Savior of mankind. That's how we're saved. And then after believing, we see these scales coming off his eyes. It's like the spiritually blind who all of a sudden have spiritual sight and understand that, that God has opened their eyes to receive the truth of the gospel. And then Saul gets baptized. Notice the order, conversion, then baptism as a public proclamation of his new identification with Christ. So Paul was unregenerate, but he was not unredeemable. And so you too, or the people we know, are not unredeemable either. Last takeaway, takeaway number three. Paul was regenerated, but he was not retired. Saul's conversion to Christ was not a retirement. It wasn't the beginning of his, quote, best life now. It was the first day of his new mission to proclaim Christ. The the persecutor of Christ had become the proclaimer of him. Look at verse 19 again in our text in Acts chapter 9. Now for several days, Saul was with the disciples who were at Damascus. In verse 20, immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues. What an about face. Saying, he is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name? And who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? Verse 22. But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews, his former allies, confounding them, who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. This is a a sure sign of conversion. Saul proclaims Jesus. Not some generalized faith in faith or in generalized view of God. No, he's proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ. And he keeps on saying this. Jesus is the Christ. Everywhere he goes for the rest of his life, over and over and over again until he's martyred. This same man wrote in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us 
in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Incredible. Who, who dies for someone that's constantly offending them? Do you want to die? Do you want to sacrifice your son for your enemies in life? I don't. When you realize how much God must have loved you to save you, you are compelled, you feel compelled, as, as Saul did, to love others enough to tell them this same message that Jesus is the Christ. And that's what Saul did. But there's a cost to, to proclaiming Christ boldly in a world that murdered the Son of God. It's not for those who want to retire. Look at verse 23. We didn't read this earlier. Acts chapter 9, verse 23. When many days had elapsed, the Jews, had had enough of this by Saul, this convert, plotted together to do away with him. Because there was cancel culture back then, too. But their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. These same Jews were, were formerly the allies of Saul. They were going to help him when he came to Damascus, kind of round up these Christians and bring him back to Jerusalem. And this is what every new believer can expect. And we, we should really tell them so, that there's a cost, there's a great reward, and there's great beauty, and it's totally worth it, but there might be hardship in this life, and there probably will be. This is what you can expect from family members and, and non-believing friends in the world. But God gives believers, and he gave Saul, a, a new power, the indwelling Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of God living inside of him, which, which gave him this, this great boldness. And we see this boldness again in verse 26 of Acts chapter 9, reading on here, when he came to Jerusalem. Now, now Saul's back in Jerusalem. He was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. I mean, rightfully so. I mean, this man was you know, having people stoned, believers stoned, and now they're afraid to associate with him. Verse 27, But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord in the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out, here's the word, boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, moving about freely in, in, in Jerusalem, and Saul was speaking out boldly again in the, in the name of the Lord. I mean, may that be said about every true believer here today, that when we have opportunity to speak about Christ, we would, like the Apostle Paul, like Saul, speak boldly. Saul didn't retire after becoming a Christian. He was zealous, but in a new way. He was zealous for the cause of Christ. And notice the result here, the last portion of this chapter we'll read in verse 31, Acts 9. So what was the result of this boldness? So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It continued to increase. An evil world and, and evil men do nothing to hold back God's plan for his church. The next time Saul appears in scriptures, a couple chapters later, in Acts chapter 11, verse 25, when Barnabas, his friend, comes to, to look for him. Saul had likely been disinherited from his family at this point for becoming a Christian. He had been forced to, to leave home. He lost everything. Let's think of this man with great reputation, great education, the best education that he could get at the time. He's on his own. Two chapters later in Acts 13, he began his missionary journeys to the Roman world. And from that point on, then he would be referred to as Paul. It was beneficial to him now in the Roman world to have a Gentile name. But here is how Paul described his life in another one of his letters in Scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I was imprisoned. I was beaten times without number. Often in danger of death, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned and survived. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep, in the water. 
I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And after all that, finally, Paul was taken to Rome as a, as a, as a prisoner. And tradition says that he was eventually beheaded. But this was no defeat for Saul, just because it seemed like it ended badly for him. This was no defeat for him, this chief persecutor of Christ turned chief proclaimer of him. In another one of his letters, Philippians chapter 1, he writes this in verse 21. For to me, Paul writes, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know what to choose, to live for Christ or to die for him. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the, the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. That's how great heaven's going to be. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul knew he had nothing to lose in following and proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ. And neither does any true believer. So may each one of us ask God to, to help us have this, this mentality, this, this mission, this, this boldness, and this unshakable faith of Saul turned the Apostle Paul. Let's pray. Lord, we're just um, inspired, struck, amazed, at how you saved Saul. But Lord, that you saved any of us is just as equally amazing. For we have all sinned and fallen short of your glory. And the wages of sin is justifiably death by you for rebelling against the king of this universe. But God, thank you that you sent Jesus to meet Saul on that road and you send Jesus to meet us so that if we would confess our sins and repent, turn from them, forsake them, and turn to you, Lord, and believe that Jesus is who you proclaimed him to be, your Son and the only Savior of mankind, that you would save us. You would forgive our sins. You would grant to us the very righteousness of Christ, and you would promise us a place with you for eternity in heaven. What an incredible, blessed assurance and promise today. I thank you for the, the power and the truth of your word. May it be impressed deeply upon our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen.